0: Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for the joy of you, your presence, the music we can make in praise of you. We give thanks as well for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that to us this day, this would be a living word, a word that shapes and molds us us in your likeness, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 146, verses 6 through 10. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. If you've been with us this fall, you know we've been slowly walking through the book of Acts, which is really the story of the early church. Luke is the author of Acts, and he, he tells the story of a small band of Jesus followers in chapter 1 and 2 that, that really end up being empowered by the Holy Spirit and, and sent out into the world to share about This Jesus to share God's love, God's healing, God's power. And and we've seen a number of stories where that's happened in surprising and unlikely ways. Today, we see the Apostle Paul carrying this message into Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we'd like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestry he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of all the places where they would go, So that they would search for God and perhaps grow up for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers. Including Dionysus, the Areopagite, And a woman named Demaris, And others with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 307 BCE, the philosopher Epicurus bought a house. With a private garden located outside the city of Athens. It was a simple beautiful space that became very much affiliated with this burgeoning philosophy that he was teaching and these rich friendships that were growing in that garden area as they grew around the philosophy. The garden really became a, a symbol of Epicureanism, which became eventually quite popular again in ancient Greece. It was a school of philosophy that believed that happiness was attained most centrally through pleasurable experiences. They don't, didn't really believe in a god or they were open to a some general sense of a God, but vague, distant, uninvolved. Really, they believed in eating well, drinking well, having nice things, having good friends for the few years you have on earth, but also always in moderation. You eat too much, you drink too much, you're going to pay for that. You have too many things, well, that becomes a burden. Epicureans are not hedonists. It's a school of moderate pleasure. They will do anything to avoid pain. Suffering brings those kinds of of things upon oneself. Always the pursuit is what uh, the word really best translated is is a pure state of tranquility. Thomas Jefferson was a self-proclaimed Epicurean. And so when he he writes that among the rights of a a human being are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness for him did not mean anything you like for as long as you'd like, for as much as you'd like. Really, it had more of that Epicurean sense of Pleasure in a moderated, good, not too much, not too little sense. A people of the private garden, Epicureans. The chief rival to the Epicurean philosophy in the Hellenistic world was Stoicism. And really on the whole they were a larger group of the two. That school was founded about the same time as Epicureanism uh, in Athens by Zeno of Cyprus. And Stoicism gets its name because Zeno would teach his philosophy out on his front porch. And porch in Greek is stoa. And it was really perfect for them. Because whereas uh, Epicureanism drew people away from public life, your family, your friends over here in the garden... Stoicism called them to a life that was set up right in the middle of public life, right in the midst of civic affairs. It was a philosophy that really believed there are rational and virtuous principles that govern the world. And so they had sort of a providential sense of God and God's governance and divinity. And if we can live in accordance with those rational, virtuous principles ordained by the divine, we'll be happy. If Epicureanism values the experiential f- experience above all else, feelings, Stoicism values the mind, reason, logic. It distrusts detru- emotions. The ideal really was sort of an unemotional, rational, uh, self-sufficient person who can face whatever whims, pains, or trials with sort of a consistent dignity and a this-to-shall-pass manner. You have power over your mind. Not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength, Marcus Aurelius, one of the most well-known Stoics once, wrote. And so the porch is a good place for the Stoics because, you know, public life, public opinion, those things can sway and there's all these heated emotions, but the Stoic can stand there and with reason and wisdom decide according to the rational designs of the universe. People of the garden, people of the porch... Pleasurable experiences, rational thinking, trust your gut, trust your feeling, trust your mind, trust the data, friendships nourished over here, duty in the fray. These were the two predominant schools in ancient Greece, both of them attractive qualities. Some of them have qualities that definitely have an overlap with Christianity Do you sense one more than the other accords with Christianity? Are we we more garden people, more porch people, or is it kind of a mix? Or or would there be maybe another image altogether that would get at what really frames and shapes who we are and what we believe and how we act? Athens was the epicenter of the leading philosophies of the day, and you heard the Apostle Paul eventually makes his way there, and he proves quite the debater. And in the Epicurean and Stoic leaders, they, they notice. You heard them inquire. May we know what this new teaching is you are presenting. So they, they invite him to the Areopagus, a, a platform that served in many ways uh, much like a modern-day TED Talk might work in our day and age. The, the leading thinkers and philosophies offering on this public forum their new insights for public consumption, public debate. Paul gets up there, he says, Athenians, I see how religious you are in every way. I've walked through your city and I've been studying all of your objects of worship. I, I saw one uh, that had an inscription to an unknown God. Athenians, I see you have an innate hunger for something more, something bigger than yourselves. You're asking some of the big probing questions. I see you are religious. Paul starts with showing this real awareness of the city and the people and what they value. He doesn't scathe them for that which is empty. He could, but instead he praises the religious impulse he sees at work. He then continues really this pattern of finding common ground with his hearer. And we won't go into all the details here, but but really verses 24 through 29 where Paul talks about, let me tell you who the living God is that maybe you call an unknown God. Uh, all of what he says for about five verses is somehow or another approximated in ancient pagan writing. God made all things, has given all creatures their life and their breath. Well, actually, Stoics could go for that. They might mean it a little differently, but that's okay. God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. Epicureans and Stoics can can both go. Whatever version of God they might take certainly is not one made in temples, not dwelling in temples. These physical things. God made all nations and appointed times and boundaries for them. Well, Stoics liked that certainly orderly sense of providence. In God, we, we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Paul right there is quoting an Athenian poet. Those aren't even his words. It's as if he's saying, Which, what I believe is, is really what you all have said so beautifully in your own poetry. I mean, a good 90% of this speech involves Paul naming commonalities, bridge building, shared assumptions, especially with the Stoics who are a little bit easier on this point because they have a more obvious belief in God. Why? Why? One of my favorite reflections is um, from Abraham Lincoln is from his speech he gave in 1842 to the Washington Temperance Society. It's, It's a bit of a longer quote, but it's one I want to read in whole because I think it is so timely and relevant both to our passage and our day and age. And he says, you know, it's an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. So with men. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Therein is a drop of honey that catches his heart, which, say what he will, is the great high road to his reason, and which, when once gained, you will find but little trouble in convincing his judgment of the justice of your cause, if indeed that cause really be a just one. On the contrary, assume to dictate his judgment, or to command his action, or to mark him as one to be shunned and despised, and he will retreat within himself, close all avenues to his head and his heart. And though your cause be naked truth itself, transformed into the heaviest lance, harder than steel, sharper than steel can be made, and though you throw it with more than a Herculean force and precision, You shall no more be able to pierce him than to penetrate the hard shell of a tortoise with a wry straw. Such is man, and so must he be understood by those who would lead him. If you want another person to see your side, to follow your lead, to be open to something important to you, a view, a vote, a faith, if you want your child... To listen and be persuaded. If you want any measure of real, lasting, good influence in any arena of life, it's like trying to penetrate the hard shell of a tortoise with a rye straw if you simply dictate, control, command, insist. And here's the real catch. Even if you're 100% right. A drop of honey catches the heart. Athenians, I see you are so very Religious. I don't take Paul's tone as that of maybe a stereotypical salesperson who's really just trying to say anything to get you to buy something. I think we have enough of his writings and stories about his actions to know there is a real genuine honesty to his tone and and way of being. I think he does give 90% of the speech trying to, to find honest commendation and common ground and bridge building where he can. This is Paul being in his own words all things to all people. This is Paul recognizing that no matter who we encounter they are made in the image of God and so they have something of God coming in and through their lives somewhere, somehow. Let's not pretend, though, that this is easy for him. Verse 16 makes clear, when Paul arrived in Athens, he is grieved by what he sees. The Greek word there, it's also translated in some Bibles as angered, provoked, stirred to deep discontent. What he sees these people giving their money and time and attention and allegiance to is so false so wrong, so dangerous, so harmful? How can you not see? And to be sure, sometimes the only response to utter evil and falsehood is to turn the tables in the temple. The anger gets expressed in a prophetic gesture. Jesus, you recall, famously did that in the hypocrisy going on among religious leaders. But turning the table, it is a pronounced prophetic moment when it is used rightly, when it is used at certain times. You use it all the time, and you may as well poke straw at a turtle. For the most part, there is a great deal of wisdom in marriages, our friendships, our politics, our workplaces, to join Paul in this love-is-patient Posture, Athenians, I see you are religious in every way. And yet, at the same time, what makes Paul's speech so remarkable, so memorable, is not only the great lengths. He really does go to bridge, build, bridge, uh, build bridges, find commonality, show forth patience with those he has some real angst about. It's also that Paul knows the central thing about which he simply cannot compromise. The central thing that is going to be different, and it is what it is, whether the Athenians can go for it or not. And he gives some articulation to that distinctive in verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, Jesus. From the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. 90% of the speech finding that common ground, showing a real love and connection and commonality, but then also this most basic thing about following a man named Jesus Jesus is the one who will judge the world in righteousness, Jesus is the standard, Jesus not pleasure, Jesus not reason, Jesus, though those may intersect and overlap at points, but Jesus ultimately has the final say about what matters, who matters, how things go. Why is Jesus the final say, the final judge according to Paul? Well, because Jesus rose from the dead. He's stronger than death. He's alive. For for, for, For Luke's telling of Paul's argument here, the resurrection of Jesus confirms and validates everything Jesus did and taught. Because Jesus is raised from death, his way, his teachings, his judgments. They carry a a power no other person or philosophy has. And some scoff, some just won't have it. A crucified Jewish man alive again and in charge of everything, judge. They're scandalized again, not just by the concept of uh, resurrection, but what Paul is getting at, that resurrection means Jesus Is judge. And perhaps they're scandalized because they've heard some of what Jesus' judgments sound like. Perhaps some of them have gotten wind about Jesus making a word of judgment, a verdict upon reality when he first showed up on the scene. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek, blessed who are meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. I mean, some of these pronouncements are anathema to Epicureans who prize the avoidance of pain. What do you mean pronouncing the verdict of blessedness upon those in the depths of pain? Or or another time, do you remember uh, Jesus tells that parable? He said, this is kind of what the kingdom of God is like. And he said, it's it's a vineyard owner who goes out and gets people to to work in the vineyard real early and says, I'll pay you this. Goes back at 9 a.m. and gets a few more workers. Noon gets a few more workers, goes out at 3 again, gets a few more laborers, goes one more time out at 5 o'clock and gets a few more workers. And at the end of the day, the vineyard owner pays everybody the exact same thing, whether they worked all day or just that last hour. And Jesus finishes this parable by saying, so the last will be first. The first will be last. And the Stoics who value that deep sense of logic and order are scandalized. How unfair, how illogical, how upside down if this one is judge. Or yet again, Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about uh, the day of judgment. He talks about the sheep and the goats, and he looks over at, at some and says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I, I needed clothes, clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then he looks to those on the other side of him. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you didn't give anything. I was thirsty, and you didn't. And, and, and he goes down like that... Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Well, well, this is just not a priority that's going to gain a whole lot of traction among sort of the garden people who really are trying to prioritize a pleasurable way of being for the few years of life that we got. Or or one more time, maybe again in his debating in Athens, Paul has even explained one of the concepts about Jesus' most final verdict upon Humanity that he will eventually put in his letter to the Romans. You heard it earlier in the service of worship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The judge's ultimate verdict is to name the sin of every person, the failing, the shortfall, the evil, and to take their sin upon the cross and forgive Every measure of it. Your failure, your evil, they are judged. They are nailed there. The final verdict is forgiveness. And I have pursued that and pursued you while you were yet sinners. As Christians, when we name that Jesus rose from the grave, part of what that means is what we confess week to week He shall judge the quick and the dead. He has the final authority, the final say on who matters, what matters, what we pay attention to. It's a scandalous word of grace time and again, but I like how C.S. Lewis once observed in his book, Mere Christianity, you know, if Christianity offered us just the kind of universe we'd always expected, if it was a religion that... Basically had common ground with every other religion. You call it that, we call it this. But it's, it's really all just kind of the same. I, he says, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing we would have made up. It has just that bizarre twist about it that real things have. The next place that Paul goes in the book of Acts after Athens is Corinth. And perhaps he's working out all the different approaches that people have to life. He's just debated these folks who, who really, they make their decisions based on what's going to be most pleasurable, others what's in their best self-interest, others what's most rational. And he's given his argument, he's tried to work out and ex- explain where there's common ground and where there's just this fundamental distinction that really does shape uh, a different way of being and, and, and thinking in this world. It's almost like he, 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 he nails it most concisely when he finally gets to the Corinthians. It's, it's a little, little vague there in Athens. Because he finally gets to the Corinthians and then he writes them a letter a little bit later where he writes this sentence. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some scoff, some want to hear more, and some followed. Amen.